Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When men think about optimizing their hormones, they tend only to think about raising their testosterone. But while increasing T can be important, an ideal health profile also means having testosterone that's in balance with your other hormones as well. Today on the show, Dr. Kyle Gillette joins me to discuss both of those prongs of all-around hormone optimization. We start with a quick overview of the different hormones that affect male health. We then get into what qualifies as low testosterone and how to accurately test yours. We also discuss what causes low testosterone in individual men and how its decline in the general male population may be linked to both birth control and the world wars. In the second half of our conversation, we discuss how to both raise testosterone and get rid of excess estrogen, including the use of some effective supplements you may never heard of. We then get into the risks and benefits of taking TRT before ending our discussion with what young men can do to prepare for a lifetime of optimal tea and hormonal health. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash optimal tea. All right, Dr. Kyle Gillette, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure. So you are a medical doctor. You do family practice. You specialize in obesity, but also hormone optimization, helping people have healthy hormones so they live a flourishing life. And today I like to talk about hormones, particularly male hormones. I think when most people think about male hormone optimization, they think about testosterone, and which is obvious why you do that. We're going to dig deep into testosterone today. But are there other hormones that affect male health that people often overlook? There certainly are. So even testosterone in and of itself, there's nothing unique about it compared to other androgens. There's just one androgen receptor. Testosterone just happens to be the most well-known androgen. So there's DHEA, which is a very weak androgen. It's produced by the adrenal glands, which are small glands above the kidney. There's DHT, which is dihydrotestosterone. This is a very strong androgen. You don't have as much of it as testosterone, but it's vitally important for what's called secondary sexual characteristic development, like the deepening of the voice, growing facial hair, those secondary sexual characteristics, which are vital. And also, I think people often overlook estrogen plays a role in male health. Certainly. Testosterone aromatizes and directly converts to estrogen. So the way to think about estrogen is the more estrogen, the better for your health because it prevents things like heart attacks at a correct ratio to where you feel good. Okay. So we got to have some estrogen in there at the right balance. And then there's another hormone called SHBG. What does that do? So SHBG is also known as androgen binding globulin. It's a protein. It's made in many places. The liver makes most of it, but the testes also make some of it. And SHBG stands for sex hormone binding globulin. It most strongly binds DHT and then it binds testosterone relatively strongly. DHEA weaker than that. And then estradiol, which is your main estrogen, even weaker than that. So think of this as regulating all of the hormones and keeping them more stable. The higher the SHBG, the more stable the level will be. Men produce a lot of testosterone during sleep. So the level is generally much higher in the morning. But if you have a very low SHBG, 
you'll crash and you can actually have deficient levels of testosterone in the evening routinely, but normal levels in the morning if you don't have enough SHBG. The most common cause of an SHBG deficiency is insulin resistance, which is often due to too many calories or too many carbohydrates and sugar. So what's interesting about all those hormones is they interact with each other. It's a complex system. So if you raise the level on one, one might go down or up. So I think a lot of guys, they get too focused on, well, I got to increase this one thing or reduce this one thing. Well, if you do that, you're going to have these cascading effects that might not be optimal. Correct. I actually heard an advertisement from a TRT clinic this morning, and it said, new study shows that men with low testosterone are more prone to cardiovascular disease and early death and diseases of aging. And I thought to myself, this is odd because they're implying that you need testosterone replacement to prevent this. But of course, that is a logical fallacy because just replacing the testosterone without figuring out what's actually causing it in the first place, not that TRT is wrong, but you need to figure out what the cause of it is and then address it. Okay. Uh, and I hope we can talk about TRT because I know a lot of guys are thinking about doing it, or maybe they are doing it and they have, might have questions about that. Let's talk about testosterone. So there's two ways to measure testosterone, two measurements of testosterone that I read about. One is total testosterone and free testosterone. So first, what's the difference between the two? And as a clinician, is there a particular number you focus on? Yeah. So total testosterone is the total amount of testosterone, whether it's bound or unbound. When testosterone is bound, it in general does not bind the androgen receptor, which is on the X chromosome. And total testosterone includes a testosterone bound to albumin, which is the main protein in the blood, and also SHBG, which we talked about earlier. But free testosterone or any free androgen is what is going to be what is actually binding to the receptor. And then it takes it into the nucleus of the, of the cell. And then it binds to DNA to cause what's called gene transcription. So the androgen receptor gene that's on the X chromosome is then mostly activated by free testosterone. Oddly enough, sometimes they make the analogy of plumbing. So you have a pipe, that's your bloodstream that takes testosterone everywhere. And then you have different types of cells, for example, a muscle cell or a brain cell or a germ cell in the, in the testicle or a, a somatic cell in the testicle which we don't have to get into. But anyway, the free testosterone level can be very different in the bloodstream, which is where we measure it on a blood test, versus inside the cell. So it is possible to have symptoms of low testosterone because you don't have enough androgen in the cell, but have a normal level in the blood. It's rare, but it's possible. And the opposite is possible, to have a, a low level in the blood, but still have enough inside the cell that's free to be causing normal gene transcription. Okay, so just to recap there, total testosterone is made up of bound and unbound testosterone. Bound testosterone can be bound to albumin or SHBG. And then when it's bound to those things, it, it can't attach to the androgen receptor in the cell. And so it can't be, can't affect, have those changes on the cell. Free testosterone or unbound testosterone is free testosterone. So as a clinician, when you do a blood test on a patient, like what number is more important to you? Like which one are you going to be focusing on more? Is it the free or the total? I think both are equally important for athletic purposes, for muscle building purposes. Usually that's more correlated with free testosterone level. However, um, symptoms and how you feel is usually correlated more with total. Insurance companies and academic societies usually put more weight into total testosterone partly because free testosterones are often measured inaccurately. So often it's more accurate to calculate your free testosterone using your total testosterone and your SHBG, and then you estimate what your free testosterone is. Some societies say low testosterone is often best treated if you, ha one, have symptoms, and then two, also have a testosterone below about 400. That's what the urologists say. Most other societies go by 300, and I tend to agree with the level of 400 with a caveat if you have significant symptoms, and with a second caveat, if you cannot improve that naturally in any way after identifying the root cause. Okay, I want to dig more into diagnosing low testosterone because there's lots of commercials out there. You just mentioned one or these businesses popping up where you can just go in and get a blood test and like, hey, you got low T, here's testosterone. And maybe they don't. So you mentioned two things you look at to diagnose low testosterone. You're going to do blood work. And if it's below 400, 
coupled with if the patient is reporting symptoms of low testosterone. We'll talk about the symptoms of low testosterone here in a bit. But let's talk about blood work. I think a lot of guys out there, they think it's a panacea. If you just take a test, you take the test and it says, oh, well, your T is at 400. They're like, well, I got low T. Why isn't one blood test alone sufficient to diagnose low testosterone? Yeah. In general, testosterone levels can have what's called outliers. It's the statistical phenomenon, but it's especially true of testosterone where you could check it one time and your testosterone that morning could be low because the last two nights you've had poor sleep and poor diet and other lifestyle factors. Males that are generally seeking a TRT prescription know this very well because there's various things that you can do to artificially make your testosterone level look low that morning. So in general, the recommendation is to recheck it two to three times after you know, a good night of sleep and normal diet and whatever you're doing normally, not after you've dieted down to 7% body fat to do an ultra marathon or bodybuilding show, then your testosterone is certainly going to be low. But when you're at a healthy body fat and there's not an artificial something else that is going to make your testosterone look low. There's a, a runner, his name is Nick Bear, and he also is doing a bodybuilding show. And I saw that he got his total testosterone checked and he's a healthy guy. I'm not sure what his baseline testosterone is. And his total testosterone was right at 100 before his bodybuilding show. So that was obviously secondary to the caloric deficit that wouldn't necessarily count as a testosterone reading that you could put stock in assessing TRT or not. But for most people, they probably won't be in a scenario like that, but it is important to get at least two readings. If you've been sick before, then maybe just postpone the blood test by a week. That way you get an accurate reading. Uh, let's move on to the symptoms. So you do the blood test. What symptoms are you looking for to diagnose low testosterone? Yeah, could be through any system. So it could be anything from depression, anxiety to low libido is certainly classic. Low muscle mass is not really one that we look for. Testosterone levels that are naturally produced are not as correlated as people would think with body composition and muscle mass and athletic performance. So it's not uncommon to see a pretty high level athlete have a total testosterone of, uh, you know, let's say 450. And let's say someone that has very low muscle mass and maybe even 20, 22% body fat to have a total testosterone of a thousand. There's not as much correlation, but other things that you would look for seriously is for example, erectile dysfunction, sexual health in general, Sperm production. So if there's a patient that is having even subfertility, just a little bit of trouble getting pregnant, that individual should certainly have a test of his testosterone as well. So with low libido, how does a guy know if he has low libido? Because that, that seems like it could be pretty subjective. Yeah. Libido obviously has a lot of psychosocial factors as well. It's usually taken at a patient's word. And a lot of times when you're testing these patients. You've known the patients for a while. Sometimes you haven't. But if they're telling you that it's low relative to what it usually is and no other factors of change, for example, you know, they've been married to the same person for five years. They're not actively going through problems in the marriage. There's not something else that would be affecting the libido. So that would usually come up in the social history when you do a history and physical on a patient. It is important to dig into the social history to make sure there's not something else that is affecting the libido. So besides you know, the low libido, maybe the lack of drive, what are the consequences of suboptimal male hormone levels, like chronically? Is it going to affect your cardiovascular system? Is it going to affect uh, cancers? Does it affect things like that? It will. Um, if someone is significantly hypogonadal for a long time, they're at much higher risk of osteoporosis, which leads to bone fractures and even mortality as well. They're at higher risk of neurodegenerative disease, likely largely due to low estrogen. If you don't have a lot of testosterone, you're probably not converting a lot of it to estrogen. And if you're not doing that, then you're also at risk of cardiovascular disease. Estrogen is very cardioprotective and helps with the production of good cholesterol to help take cholesterol out of the plaque. So they've done studies and you look at one group of people that have true hypogonadism, which is generally two levels under 264 or so. And then one group you give TRT and then one group you don't give TRT. You would think that the group that you give TRT would have a shorter lifespan because androgens do cause 
excess production of quote-unquote bad cholesterol. They do increase a particle called ApoB, which is the most important one to watch for cardiovascular risk. But the group that you give TRT actually has less heart attacks and strokes. Right, because what you were saying before, the testosterone creates estrogen, and then the estrogen protects the heart. So let's talk about the causes of low testosterone. What can be behind low T? Most commonly, metabolic syndrome. So (laughs) excess calories, excess carbs, insulin resistance. High fasting insulin leads to the liver not producing SHPG. So you might be producing a decent amount of testosterone, but it's being metabolized so fast that it's difficult to use. That's most common. The second most common, I think, is sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea. Um, Obviously, that kind of goes hand in hand with metabolic syndrome, but often it goes hand in hand with PTSD. I saw a study on young men that had just gotten out of the military and they had been diagnosed with PTSD and they tested them all for sleep apnea and something like 80% of them had sleep apnea and they were all under a BMI of 25. So there's certainly a lot of stress component as well. The limbic system includes places like the hypothalamus and the amygdala and downstream to that is the hippocampus and the amygdala. Downstream of those is the hypothalamus and that's some of the places of the brain that are involved in sleep regulation and breathing. So the theory is that apneic episodes don't just come from having a huge neck and excess body fat, but there are other factors like trauma at play. And when you have a patient with severe sleep apnea, they have a score called a AHI score. And if that score is very high, like 100 or 200, you almost always see deficient testosterone levels. Okay. So having metabolic syndrome, being overweight, sleep apnea, any other causes of low testosterone? Yeah. So theoretically, xenoestrogens could be a cause of low testosterone. These are things like phthalates. These are also things like bisphenol A, also known as BPA. You might see BPA-free on water bottles from time to time. These do bind various estrogen receptors and are likely suppressive. By suppressive, I just mean they shut down the production of the hormones that lead to testosterone production to some degree. Uh, Heat damage is also kind of an honorable mention. Some people might be familiar with what varicose veins are. Varicocele is where there's varicose veins in the scrotum. And some people with varicocele can have venous cooling very well. The testes want to be about 91 to 92 degrees, where the body is 98.6 degrees. So if you can't keep your testes at 91 or 92, then you're going to have less testosterone production and less sperm production. And in the more severe cases, you'll have atrophy, which is shrinking, because uh, think about them as factories. If you're not using the factory, they start to shut down. And besides these lifestyle factors, environmental factors, you could also have a, just an issue with your pituitary system, right? You might have a tumor or something in your pituitary gland that's dysregulating the release of hormones. Correct. I suppose that would be likely one of the more common, less modifiable risk factors. There's not a lot that you can do about that. You can take supplements like vitamin B6 or like vitamin E, but a lot of times pituitary microadenomas or even macroadenomas, basically it's a small tumor uh, in the brainstem. Uh, The pituitary gland is where you make a lot of different hormones, like growth hormone and like LH and FSH, but LH is the main hormone that's produced there that leads to testosterone release. So there's two different types of hypogonadism. There's primary and secondary. So primary is where the testes are not functioning. And then secondary, think about it, it's it's two steps instead of one step. So the LH can be low in secondary hypogonadism. And if your LH is very low and a hormone like prolactin or IGF-1 is very high, then that might be a sign of a pituitary microadenoma, in which case you need a MRI. And LH, that's luteinizing hormone, correct? Correct. LH is luteinizing hormone. FSH is follicle-stimulating hormone. They do cross-talk to some degree, but LH mostly helps with testosterone production and mostly binds to the Leydig cell in the testicle. And FSH mostly binds in the seminiferous tubules and helps with spermatogenesis. So, I mean, listeners have probably heard reports that T levels in men have been declining in the past few decades. Do we know what's causing this sort of general decline? Is it just all these lifestyle, like people are getting fatter, they're not sleeping, they're stressed, and the stuff in the environment, is that kind of what we've decided is the cause of the lower T levels? 
The various causes that we've already discussed are likely the primary causes of what is causing declining testosterone levels. But I think there is another factor and a lot of that has to do with what I'd call epigenetic drift. Some people might call it natural selection. I might call it unnatural selection where individuals with higher testosterone levels are no longer being selected for as early. And also a lot of individuals are having kids later on in life. For example, in their 30s or even 40s, when you might have very different maternal and paternal hormone profiles, that's one of the reasons why I recommend if men are taking medications like finasteride or dutasteride, that they stop their finasteride 90 days before attempting conception, and they stop dutasteride, depending on what dose they are, usually six months before conception. By the way, spermatogenesis takes about 60 days or two months. That way they have enough time to wash out before they start producing the sperm in the germ cells so that they wouldn't pass down any epigenetic changes to potential offspring. Okay, so maybe this is the idea is that, again, this is theoretical, right? The, the testosterone increases aggression and risk-taking behaviors, and that's not as adaptive in our safe, like high-tech modern landscape. So men with lower testosterone might be more successful these days, and women choose those men for their partners. And then when they have children, the men pass down his genes, and then his children have lower testosterone too. And that just perpetuates you know, just lower testosterone in the male population overall. Also this idea of selection. I've heard that, I, I read this somewhere, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong on this, that women on birth control, they're not attracted to higher testosterone men. Is that true? Yeah, that is one of the major players of uh, what I would call unnatural selection. Another interesting unnatural selection, I suppose, if you look at, not very recently, but the World War, certainly in World War I and World War II, or in the Korean War or Vietnam War, but especially wars that, even if a war has a draft, the individual that has higher testosterone and also more sensitive androgen receptors, so this is probably true throughout all of human history, you would, and this obviously cannot be proven scientifically, but theoretically, that individual would be more likely to volunteer to go to the front line or to very risky positions. And if that male passes away at age 18 or age 19, then that is uh, likely a fecundity rate of zero, so no offspring from that individual, and then you start to have genetic drift. Okay, so again, this is theoretical. You know, what you're saying is that men with very high testosterone, they're going to take more risk. And in doing so, that may take them out of the gene pool by taking those risks. Uh, and there's more opportunity for that sort of risk-taking during big global conflicts like the world wars, right? More high T men die, they lose the chance to reproduce and pass on their genes. And then that just contributes to the declining testosterone in men in general. And that's going to have echoes through the generations. And on top of that, we just have the, the, we have selection factors going on in the mating market as well. Yes. And it's not like it's an be all end all, you know, all or nothing. You select for high testosterone or you select for low testosterone. There's a lot more psychosocial factors at play, but we are certainly seeing that there's likely a decline in testosterone, even a bit more than could be accounted for by just metabolic syndrome and sleep apnea. Maybe things like heat damage of the testicle, maybe things like xenoestrogens are playing some part in this, but uh, and we'll probably never know, but yeah. it's very fun to speculate about it. Well, the heat damage to the testicle, like what would cause, is like keeping your laptop on your lap, sitting down a lot, is that, would that cause heat damage? Probably not significantly enough, but if you already had a varicocele and you already spent an hour in the jacuzzi keeping your really hot laptop and phone directly over your scrotum is certainly not going to help. I suppose someone could prove this at some point. They've actually done a lot of studies where they look at the scrotal temperature and they've randomized two groups of usually uh, you know, college students. And one group they have where basically like a sock around their scrotum that has something really warm in it. So they warm up the scrotum artificially to... Uh, you know, 98 degrees instead of 91 or 92 degrees. And in the individuals that don't have varicocele, they can still overcome that heat damage because their venous 
cooling mechanism is so good at buffering that heat damage. So that did not affect their testosterone production and it did not affect their spermatogenesis. However, in individuals that already have impaired venous cooling, for example, um, with varicocele or varicose veins, then it did. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. 
Well, let's talk about optimal levels of testosterone. So below 400, and if you're experiencing low testosterone symptoms, that's not good. Is there an optimal level? Is it like a level that guys should reach for? Or is it going to differ from man to man? It certainly differs, but that's kind of an easy answer. So I'll get into it more than that. A lot of times people have told me that I say individualized. I say that word a lot because health is individualized. We are all unique. We have different genetics, we have different epigenetics, and we have different growth and development past that as well. But for most men, an optimal testosterone level is between about 500 and as high as you can go naturally. So, you know, there is some individuals with a total testosterone of 1500. They almost always have really high SHBG. So a lot of times their free testosterone is only 20 or 25. Between about 550 and whatever you can produce top in endogenously, naturally without medication. But you also say it could be lower. I mean, you mentioned there are athletes who are at 450 and they're healthy. So if you get a blood test and it's below 500 a little bit, you probably, I mean, I guess you shouldn't worry too much about it if you're not experiencing any symptoms. Correct. Okay. That's good to know. So let's say a patient comes to you reporting symptoms of low T. You do a series of blood tests that show, yeah, that your T levels are low. They're below 400. What's your first line of attack in helping this patient get his T levels up? First thing to look at would be LH and FSH. If those are really low, then I'm worried about the pituitary or the brain. If those are really high, then I'm worried about the health of the testicles. If they're in between, then I look for another pathology like diabetes, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, sleep apnea, et cetera. I also look at prolactin and IGF-1, make sure you assess their tumor risk. And then I also look at estradiol. If it's a very high estradiol, then estradiol is likely what is suppressing the production of LH from the pituitary. So you have estradiol, which is your main estrogen, which is causing less testosterone production. And in that case, I look at things like alcohol consumption that can upregulate aromatase or consumption of excess calories or fat that can upregulate aromatase, um, which converts testosterone to estrogen, by the way. So those are the first things. Beyond that, what are you looking at? Beyond that, I'd like to, if pertinent, do an exam, make sure, especially if this individual is, you know, developing, if they're an adolescent or whatnot, you need to make sure that they're through all the tanner stages, basically tanner stages one to five, five is done when you're essentially adult growth and development to make sure that they don't have some unusual or unlikely syndrome. And then after that, I'd like to look at their fasting insulin, their A1C, see if there's something that I can correct. I look at their cortisol. If their cortisol is high, then there's a lot of lifestyle factors and also supplements that can help control cortisol, like ashwagandha or emodin. I look at their prolactin. So if their prolactin is just a little bit high, then maybe I do start them on some vitamin B6 or some vitamin E. If their estrogen is high, maybe I start them on some calcium deglucurate that helps with estrogen glucuronidation and metabolism. It basically helps you excrete it through your stool. And then repeat labs in one, two, maybe even three months and see if we can improve those things along with a as always, diet and exercise. Okay, so it sounds like the first line of attack, if it's not a pituitary problem, uh, you're going to be primarily doing lifestyle changes, right? Quitting drinking, getting better sleep, diet, exercise to help get that insulin sensitivity back online. So yeah, lifestyle stuff would be the first line of attack. And then uh, will it take maybe one to two months before you start seeing results from that? Yeah, often it does. A lot of times you feel better the first week and a lot of times your testosterone production recovers very quickly. But occasionally I use medications as well. So some people utilize a short course of HCG, which essentially binds the LH receptor, takes the place of LH. And occasionally I'll utilize very short courses. By very short, I mean a week or maybe two weeks of selective estrogen receptor modifiers or sometimes longer in the right patient. Uh, especially very young patients that you're trying to stimulate endogenous production. These are often patients that desire fertility within the near to mid near future. Besides diet, exercise, sleep, managing stress, you mentioned a few supplements that you recommend men taking to optimize male hormones. Are there ones that you recommend for just any guy who, you know, maybe they don't have any problems with testosterone, but they just want to feel good? Are there ones that you like and that are safe? Creatine, 5 to 10 grams a day would be a great start. L-carnitine would be a consideration, especially if they're interested in athletic performance optimization or body composition optimization. 
L-carnitine would be reasonable, consider checking a TMAO to make sure that it doesn't convert to that in too high of a rate. Another reasonable addition, if someone has high estradiol, would be calcium deglucurate to make sure that they're binding up extra estrogen and excreting it. I've heard that boron can impact testosterone. How does boron increase T levels? Boron works okay for people with really high SHBGs. It increases free testosterone by decreasing SHBG. The effect wears off to some degree if you take boron for a very long period of time. If you have very low levels or you're insufficient or deficient in boron, it works extremely well. And a lot of people consume dates or raisins because they tend to be relatively high in boron. Uh, there's another symbol I've been hearing about lately, Tungat Ali, I think that's how I pronounce it. it. What's going on with that one? Tungat Ali is also known as Long Jack. So Tungat's active ingredients are uripeptides, one of which is uricominone. And Tongcat is helpful because it upregulates a couple different enzymes in the steroidogenesis pathway. There's been plenty of human study on it with mixed results. And it looks like the cause of the mixed results is sometimes people have great activity of those enzymes. So that's not the rate limiting step in testosterone production. So think of it as a signal. Think of your testicles as a factory. Tongcat is a signal to that factory to ramp up production. But if your factory is already operating at maximum capacity or it's limited by something else, then that's not going to improve your testosterone level. Tongcat works on very similar enzymes that are also upregulated by insulin and IGF-1. So in general, if you're in a caloric deficit or if you're trying to lose weight or body fat, Tongcat will work better. If you have a low fasting insulin or a lower end IGF-1, Tongcat will also likely work better. And I've seen this anecdotally as well. A couple of years ago, I remember ZMA was a big supplement that was pushed for increasing testosterone levels. Anything to that? ZMA is very reasonable to add if you have a low ALK-FOS. So if you look at your CMP, which is your metabolic panel, there will be an enzyme called alkaline phosphatase. Alkaline phosphatase along with GGT are two intracellular enzymes. And the lower these two are, the more likely you are to have insufficient levels of zinc and magnesium. That's why when I have input to various companies designing a supplement to optimize testosterone, I almost always put in zinc, magnesium, and vitamin D. You just want to make sure these aren't the right limiting step. Think about trying to optimize your testosterone as like trying to get into a fraternity. You're not just you know, making best friends with one of the people and then just hoping that nobody else will blackball you. You want to make sure that you address each individual, because if you, like, let's say you forget your vitamin D and forget your zinc, you're deficient in zinc, you're deficient in vitamin D, um, those two things will hold you back. Once you start down this path of increasing your testosterone or getting back, you know, getting them optimized, is there any benefit to getting them higher? So like, let's say you started off at 400, you had low T symptoms, and then through lifestyle changes and maybe taking some supplements, you bump it up to like a 700. Are you going to get any more benefit from testosterone by getting it up to 800 or 900? Past about 600, there's little to no benefit other than bragging rights. Uh, At what point would you have a patient go on testosterone replacement therapy? At any point when the risks outweigh the benefits and they understand both the risks and the benefits in their own terms. So what are the risks of TRT? Yeah. One of the risks is it causes more fluid retention and swelling. One of the risks is if you hyperconvert to estrogen, estrogen will then bind to the liver and cause more SHBG and platelet production. And if your platelets go very high past a certain point, we know that people on oral estrogen, the blood clot risk is associated with how high their platelets and SHBG go. It's likely the same for TRT. So if you go on TRT and you go into a huge bulk and you start consuming a bunch of alcohol and your platelets skyrocket, then that is going to increase your blood clot risk. So TRT is not in and of itself going to improve health. It's just going to be a tool to help you achieve a lot of your goals. Another risk of testosterone is if people have heard of medications called statins, those work by decreasing the activity of an enzyme called HMGC way reductase. Any androgen, including testosterone, increases the activity of this enzyme. So often people's cholesterol, and it's not actually cholesterol, it's their lipoproteins, but People's quote-unquote bad cholesterol gets worse. That's why we watch that ApoB number very closely because we know that ApoB is the particle that is going to lead to plaque formation in areas like the coronary artery. And I guess the benefits of 
TRT is that you'll mitigate those symptoms of low testosterone. Correct. And there's, of course, other benefits as well, like the benefits of estrogen that we discussed earlier being its cardioprotective benefit. And one of the main benefits of testosterone in a lot of individuals that I see start is they might have it, let's say they have an A1C of 5.7 or 5.8, which is technically pre-diabetes. You're very unlikely to get diabetes on testosterone compared to if you are not on TRT. So a lot of individuals, uh, perhaps they're I wouldn't say doomed, but very likely to get diabetes. And TRT can make a huge difference, especially when combined with other insulin sensitizing medications to prevent that. Do you keep people on TRT indefinitely? Is it like once you start to keep doing it or are there periods where you're like, well, we're going to take you off and see what happens or how, how does that work? Most individuals are on indefinitely, but not everyone. Occasionally there will be a patient that is that is profoundly hypogonadal and the benefit of testosterone at that time is just huge. Let's say it's a patient who has a BMI of 40 and they weigh 400 pounds and they also don't have a huge amount of lean body mass to lose in proportion. Everybody who weighs 400 pounds is going to have a lot of lean body mass, but just less relative to your average person. And they want to maintain as much of that as possible. They need that tool in order to exercise. Even if it's somewhat of a placebo tool, that still helps so if it gets them having a very healthy lifestyle, they go on that medication, perhaps they go on another medication like a GLP-1 for a short period of time, and then they don't really know what their baseline testosterone is. So maybe after two years, they learn those lifestyle interventions. They very slowly are ready to come off of every medication. And then you can use a medication like HCG to help restore natural production perhaps one week of a medication like enclomifin or Novaldex or even raloxifene. And then you see what their natural production capability is. You give them a few weeks and perhaps they restore to a total testosterone of 600s, which is uh, likely quite good in that situation. Or perhaps they go down to 100s again. But a lot of people would want that chance to go back to producing their testosterone naturally. And in some cases, it does work. I would say 90% of people that start on testosterone are going to remain on it indefinitely. But I would also say that 90% of people that go on testosterone can very likely regain at least their previous level of testosterone if they were to want to come off. Well, here's a question. With female hormone therapy, you might start taking it during menopause to help with symptoms. But at a certain point, you know, like once menopause is over, I think you're supposed to get off those hormones. Does something like that happen for men? Like, I mean, you might do TRT throughout your 50s and 60s, and then at a certain point, you're in your 70s, and you're like, well, I don't need to do this anymore. Or are there 80-year-old or 90-year-old guys taking TRT? There are 80 or 90-year-old guys taking TRT. Occasionally, you will do a dose adjustment. It just kind of depends on the situation, but a lot of times when males reach that age, they are less likely to have as much benefit and they are more likely to have slightly more harm. So it's a moving target over time where you get out the scale and you're weighing the risks and the benefits. And at that point, when a patient's already on TRT, you also weigh the risks of how difficult it would be to come off, which is not extremely difficult, but it is difficult because there's medication regimens that you have to go with. And even with those medications, often there is a short period of time when you don't feel great. So we've been talking about optimizing male hormones in grown men, but let's say we got some dads and moms out there listening and they've got boys who are about to start or are in the middle of puberty. What can they do for their sons? What can young guys do to make sure they set themselves up for a, a lifetime of male hormone optimization? First and foremost, no huge dirty bulk in early adolescence. What I mean by that is, you know, like let's say there's somebody that's trying to put on weight for football or whatever other reason. Can't think of many reasons where it would be worth it, but they're putting on weight and also putting on fat. Adipose tissue in fat, adipose tissue is fat, that is going to increase the conversion to estrogen and estrogen is going to close the growth plates of the bone. So that's going to prevent you from reaching full stature both in height and other areas of your skeletal development as well. So that's a great initial recommendation. Thinking about gut health and fiber consumption is also very important. That's going to prevent, again, from over 
uh, it's called intrahepatic circulation of estrogen. Estrogen is not necessarily the enemy. In fact, a little bit of estrogen is needed to what's called priming the pituitary in order to fully kickstart adolescence. And that's one of the reasons why boys with very high body masses have higher estrogens. So the pituitary gets primed too early and something called precocious puberty is happening, which is too early of puberty. So that's another thing to consider. In addition to that, you want to have a reasonable balance between cardiovascular exercise and resistance training. You certainly want to do both because adolescence can be thought of as your free endogenous steroids, I'll say cycle just because people understand it, but your free endogenous steroid boost where you know you are going to be one, super sensitive to all the androgens that are released. Uh, probably most people remember puberty. And you will also be having a lot of androgen around, regardless of what you do, even if your health hasn't been great. So when that endogenous steroid burst happens, that is the perfect time to take advantage of those lifestyle tools to build up very high bone mineral density and very high lean body mass without putting on excess body fat. I imagine young people getting plenty of sleep is important too. Yes, extremely important. And that might be one of the most common causes of suboptimal hormone profiles in adolescence. What about supplementation? Is supplementation something you encourage in young people to optimize their hormones or is you just focus on the diet and exercise? With the oversight of a doctor, I do encourage supplementation if it makes sense. For example, let's say there's a young person and they get a stool test and the beta-glucuronidase enzyme is very high. We know that that individual is just recycling their estrogen over and over again. That makes something like a calcium deglucurate or with the oversight of the doctor, maybe even a very low dose of an aromatase inhibitor, a very reasonable addition. And then if you get blood tests, you can actually check the hormones to make sure that they're increasing at the correct rates, that your DHT is optimal, your testosterone is optimal, your estradiol is optimal, your IGF-1 is optimal. And then you can tweak a supplement. Supplements are just like medications. They have pharmacologic effects, so they have an effect on the body and the body metabolizes them. So things like creatine can be very reasonable. Creatine does not affect the development of the kidneys. I did a podcast with my good friend, James O'Hara, recently. We get a lot of questions from pediatricians because the AAP, which is a society of pediatricians, still recommends no creatine supplementation whatsoever up to the age of 18. So not even, not even a 17-year-old. So I just kind of thought that, that was, uh, and it's been 15 years, so they're going to update their recommendation within the next couple of years whenever they have a, a joint meeting. But that's definitely a vestige of times past when we thought that creatine was harmful to healthy kidneys. You just check us a stat and see because creatine makes your creatinine blood marker look abnormally high, falsely high. So creatine can make sense in a lot of kids as well. And then if there is a kid that has really low insulin and IGF-1, sometimes Toncat makes sense in that individual. And then in some kids that do have optimal hormone profiles, let's say there's an athlete and he's developing or she's developing and they have very high testosterone, very high IGF-1, that's great. You know that myostatin levels are going to be really high after you have that burst of androgen during adolescence. Myostatin is going to stop the muscle from developing and cause you to start putting more fat into the tissue. I think that myostatin inhibitors, weak ones like fortitropin, which comes from uh, fertilized egg yolks, or epicatechin, cocovia is a good source of epicatechins. Different cocoa powders have a lot of epicatechins. Green tea has EGCG, which is another epicatechin. Basically, those take down the levels of myostatin. Those are also very reasonable to take for the right patient. What about should parents be sweating about xenestrogens in their kids? Like, you know, make sure they get certain types of deodorants or cosmetic products and avoiding plastics. Bisphenol A and phthalates, yes. That's kind of where I personally draw the line where if you are worried about every single thing, we live in an unnatural environment, um, more so than ever. So those are usually the ones that I say to avoid. If you live in an area that more likely has contaminants and microplastics, a lot of times I do recommend testing your water. There are a lot of services that do this. I personally used my tap score to test both the water uh, from the tap and the water through my Berkey filter. If you have young children, then that seems like a very reasonable time to use a water filter if you don't know what the contents of your water is. And then as far as foods, of course, avoiding ultra-processed foods, 
I think it was like ultra processed mac and cheese that got a bad name for having high phthalates. I assume they fixed that by now, but I actually don't know. So a lot of times it's the same recommendations as any other whole food diet and then know your sources, try to avoid contaminants at very high levels and use the Pareto principle, you know, try to do right most of the time and you'll get most of the benefit, even if you're just doing it some of the time. Well, Kyle, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? My hub is on Instagram, Kyle Gillette MD, and it's Gillette Health on all other platforms. I do have a podcast that we fairly recently have, uh, I, I guess, gotten pretty good audio and video of, but that's on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We have a clinically, uh, I guess, a clinical grade podcast. And then we have a layman's podcast that we're going to call After Hours, which should provide good entertainment. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Kyle Gillette, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Dr. Kyle Gillette. You can find more information about his work at his website, gillettehealth.com. Also check out his podcast, Gillette Health Podcast. And check out our show notes at aom.is slash optimal T, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Reminding you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.